We're on. Blog Talk Radio. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gil Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with first ladies of nations, households, business, and communities. Trustworthy, live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host, Gail Sylvia. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to have an extraordinary woman with us. Um, the passion and compassion that she um, expresses and delivers to the world is revealed in an upcoming film that we really are asking for your support on. It's called Resurrecting Love, The Cemetery That Can Heal a Nation, and the producer and phenomenon behind this um, film and work of art is the amazing China Gallon. China is an award-winning author, a professor at the Graduate Theological Union um, School in Berkeley, and she's with us here on Sylvia Global. China, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning, Gail. I'm really excited and honored to be with you this morning. I, I think the pleasure is all ours. We are just absolutely thrilled. Um, I'm especially um, excited about you know a chan- knowing that you're going to be coming on a few times um, to share with our audience globally the work that's so important to you. So we're going to use this broadcast as an introduction to... Uh, resurrecting love and the film work that your project that you're currently um, deeply engaged in and have been committed to for more than more than ten years. Is that accurate? Well, yes, unfortunately, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It is accurate. I had no idea, Gail. Of course, when I started um, doing what I thought was making a few phone calls for a friend. That ten years later, I would have written a book. We would have gotten new legislation passed in Texas on people getting access to their cemeteries, and then, you know, that we would be making a film. So this has been an astonishing journey. Still is. Where did it begin? Well, you know, when you say that, I feel like it began. Uh, I see immediately the creek that I grew up playing along across the street from my grandmother's house in Dallas, Texas. Dallas was, uh, when I was growing up there in the 50s and 60s, was a bastion of separation and segregation. And I grew up and attended a Catholic girls' school there, uh, Ursuline Academy. And I really, when I look back at all this, I think a lot of it, so it began for me in some ways in grade school because I grew up in this intensely segregated city, going to this Catholic girls' school where I was taught that we're all children of God. And I believed it, but I didn't see it around me. And as a child, I now realize that that planted a kind of sense of dissonance that I didn't have words for when I was young. And now I have the words. Now I know what it was that I was seeing, but couldn't name. And the source of the discomfort I had in being told one thing and not seeing it lived in another, in another realm. So I think that's really the beginning. 
And I also had the good fortune. It was an odd sort of thing to be claiming as good fortune, but there was a haunted house, supposedly, in my grandmother's neighborhood. It was a the home of a woman who had actually once been quite brilliant, apparently, had her doctorate from Harvard in 1916, and had abandoned her home. And it was sort of a place where it was an oddity and a curiosity, but the story was, the tale was that the house was, was this strange piece of work that it was with jail bar doors inside and out, because the white people's story was that she was crazy, but that she had kept Negroes in her attic. So I grew up with this bizarre story of racism and imprisonment and someone being kept under lock and key up in the attic. As an adult, I now see that this is almost like a metaphor for America mm. and what people have tried to do, what what the white way of thinking has tried to do with difference, whether it's of color or ability or religion, whatever it is, just lock it up and put it up in the attic, get it out of sight. So that was a sort of, I had to, it began really with these kinds of metaphors, I think, and this kind of um, disjunction between what I was taught and deeply believed and still do and my experience. Are you saying that that what's what we bear what we try to bury ends up kind of seeping out in the form you know of a way of affecting all of us beyond just the individual that might try to bury their past or resurrect Absolutely. their past that it has an impact on I mean that lady's you know that haunted house affected you and it had nothing to do directly with you Right. So the, it was a curiosity in the neighborhood, and it was sort of you know kids would dare each other to sneak in. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was finally arrested there when I was sixteen because I started leading tours into it. <laughs> <laughs> so that says something else about you. Just couldn't leave it alone. You know, you just it just kept haunting you or speaking to you. So what happened after that? Because this carries forward, you know, for more than 10 years and evolves into the bones of people in a cemetery. Actually, you know, in many ways calling for you to resurrect the love and to restore, you know, a part of humanity that's lost on a nation that most of us are oblivious to and would be afraid to touch. Heavens, I can't possibly do all that. Yes, you're already <laughs> doing it. Well, you, you are already doing that. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but listen, it's the goodness of many, many people and the larger heart of love that really makes life the the beautiful thing that it is for all of us that's doing this. I mean, I, I just work here, <laughs> truly. Um this is not my idea, first of all, that's really important. And I think I want to make it clear that, you know, going forward out of my childhood and putting that story of the haunted house aside, which I did for years and years, um, until much later in life when I 
suddenly recalled, I I recalled, I'd read a poem by Steve Orland about abandoned places, places we'd played in as children, you know, haunted houses and secret places that would scare us to go into, but yet we were always drawn to them. And I remembered that house, I'd forgotten it. Um, you know, for probably 30 years. And I then I went back because I, I'm from Texas. And so the next trip I went back and I discovered that there was truth in that story that, in fact, uh, the woman had kidnapped her gardener and had been kidnapped in the attic and she was arrested for trespassing. I mean, she was arrested for kidnapping in, back in the 30s. And that began, really, in some ways, this story. And that was back in the, gosh, this was the late 70s when I began to write that. And the, and the, some of the research I began to do about the 1930s and the 1940s uh, it, it, to discover the truth of the, that Dallas story um, taught me an enormous amount going down to the library and reading about what was happening to the Jews in Europe at that time and Hitler. And seeing the similarities of what I was reading about what Hitler was doing and then reading about lynchings in, you know, through, well, throughout the South, but in Texas specifically and in East Texas specifically. So in some ways I feel like this material really gave me my real education. It began there. And I became fascinated, and no one talked about these things, and they weren't in my textbooks, uh, you know, when I'd gone to school. So there was this whole sort of underworld of life that people didn't talk about. And I think that's part of what became interesting and I realized was part of what needed to be, I needed to understand in order to move through the world in a way that was transformative and graceful and useful. So what happened 10, ten years ago, it happened earlier, I suppose, but, but was it... When I was back visiting my family, so I have family in Dallas and in Marshall. Well, I have family in a lot of places in Texas. But I was back visiting my family in East Texas. They had moved from Chicago in 1903 to raise peaches. They had a big nursery business, which is all gone now. But I was very fond of my cousins over there. And I've gone to East Texas off and on, you know, like I would go in the summers when I was a little girl. They were my country cousins, and I grew up in the city. So I met an elderly woman uh, at a gathering one night in Marshall at a, in the church, in a church basement, and she introduced herself to me as Mrs. Newville Britton. She announced herself in this way. My name is Newville Britton, and I am the keeper of love. And she had a smile on her face that would bring up the sun. And I thought, my goodness, the keeper of love? And I didn't realize, and she explained very quickly thereafter, that love was also a cemetery. It was an historic black cemetery uh, that had that went back at least to the times in which people were enslaved. And Mrs. Britton had family buried in that cemetery. She'd moved away. Her husband had been in the military. She was a teacher. They'd lived around the world. She came back to Marshall and discovered that the community of descendants that lived around Love Cemetery in the eastern part of the county, near the Louisiana border, out in the rural countryside, had been locked out of that cemetery for 40 years. At the height of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, 
for reasons no one's ever been able to tell me or explain to me. Suddenly, I think I need to back up just a moment so that we have all of this, um, you know, so that the audience is fully understanding the significance of this and then let you continue the story. So Resurrecting Love is a film project that's being used to bridge the growing division between people in our society. And you're doing this by telling the story of two women's friendships, one that's black, one that's white, and that grew out of a universal experience of honoring the dead and honoring one's ancestors. So the documentary is made for the express purpose of bringing people together, you know, by providing, sharing this dynamic story and a model for building community and transforming racism in our society. So by focusing on this conf- on the conflict over the over love cemetery which you're introducing right now by this woman who's the keeper of love and it means so much more. Um you know those words the the depth and breadth of those words mean so much. And then the way African the African American community has been locked out of their history and then how this reveals experiences that often affect white Americans who don't even recognize or understand um, some of the racist behaviors and the allegations of this legacy as it carries forward into other generations. So building this alliance is what changes the dynamics and makes transformation possible. So that's 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 the that's what the resurrecting love documentaries. Um, that's the power of the story that you're putting together in the movie. Yes, and it grew out of the book I wrote called Love Cemetery. Yes. Unburying the Secret History of Slaves. Okay. So, that's a paperback now. That That's a paperback book that came out in about 2007. But when this all started, I actually was working on another book, The Bond Between Women, A Journey to Fierce Compassion on International Women Activist Scale. Hmm. Um and had been in Argentina and Nepal, the last thing I was thinking of was coming across a story like this or being asked to help Mrs. Britton. I live in California. I am, I feel like a migratory bird because I have to go back to where I'm from. That's part of my makeup. I, I love the land, and I feel like I have a reciprocal relationship to that land that um, and my family there were nursery people and they grew things, plants and fruit trees and um, and they mean a lot to me so I, I continue to honor my own heritage. So I was just sort of minding my own business I thought <laughs> when Mrs. Britton <laughs> tapped me on the shoulder <laughs> so finish and asked telling, me yeah, tell yeah. us about that, you know, continue the story I just want to make sure that I had provided um, you know the audience with an understanding of where the story is going and its relationship to this important documentary that we're asking for support on. Well, thank you so much. Please stop me at any moment because I am so immersed in this story and I have worked on it for so long. It's I have to. I, I need someone to kind of gently butt guide me back. <laughs> Not everybody knows all this. <laughs> yeah, and and we don't. So, what happened after you 
learn about Love Cemetery? Well, what happened initially was um, the, my other friend, Mrs. Britton is quite elderly. In fact, now she's close to 90. And she was in her late 70s when I first met her as the Keeper of Love. And But the reason she was at the meeting that I was at was that I'd met this other woman who's now a very beloved friend, Doris Vitito, who um, I'd been told knew a lot about the area because she was secretary of Shiloh Baptist Church, which is in outside of Marshall, again, out in the countryside, a small black church that goes back to 1866. Anyway, so I'd gotten to know Doris a little and discovered that Doris's mother had been locked out of the cemetery. At the time, I don't think Doris had remembered the name, but she invited Mrs. Britton to come with us to the meeting we went to one night. And it, in fact, was Love Cemetery where Doris's mother was buried, but locked out and sad and heartbroken as she was dying that she never was able to get back in and clean her mother's grave. This was shocking to me, growing up with just the simplest of privileges of being white. First of all, even understanding that what that what having white skin means, uh, but not understanding the extent to which it influences our day to day life and, and so I you know, I think it's important I, I've taken the position that people really do want to do good. They don't want to be unkind or cruel, that many of us are ignorant and uh, blind, and there's a lot we don't know. So, And there's a lot that people seem to be fearful of, which is unfortunate because another way to think of fear is excitement uh, and a signal that something important is about. So... Doris was really the one that helped me with this, too, because she realized that it was Love Cemetery that her mother had not been able to get back into. And so Mrs. Britton asked us if we would ride out into the countryside with her in the morning just to see the general area where we thought where she remembered love was. Because at that time, she was the only person we knew that even knew which unmarked, sandy, private, you know, you know, off, off, off-road path we had to follow. Um, and we found the cemetery. Not only that, we discovered it had been fenced inside, ten-foot-high exotic animal fencing. And we also, and the gate was locked. However, my son, who was with us, who's a filmmaker, actually, um, realized that the gate was actually ajar, and we found there was an opening in it. And so we simply walked through what turned out to be an open gate. So China, left open. Mm-hmm. So as I listen to you, I hear um, so many incredible metaphors and also some really. Uh, rather deep analogies uh, in life in general, you know, how ignorance, you know, evolves into hate, you know, and hate um, kind of breeds 
um, stories and legacies that are filled with more ignorance. And then, you know, the, the ignorance also has a, you know, a great deal of power. So Love Cemetery and the comment of, you know, moving from a place of love and the power of that to unlock, you know, those places within our own lives, within our own communities and within our history um, are so deeply woven together. You know, and the fact That's that... That's a beautiful you, analogy. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, I, 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 when I first had the opportunity to meet you, it was about, you know, a little over a month ago, and we immediately connected. And one of my, you know, the most intriguing parts, you know, I think I asked you this question on the spot was, you know, why did you even care? You know, why? why? Because so many, it's not like you would be the, the first person to hear this story or to know and have access to this information. But what distinguishes you and your son's commitment to the film and bringing the story forward is starts from a place of caring. And just sheer caring um, to know the truth seems to be what also um, led you to lead tours of a haunted house, you know, wanting to know the truth. You know, you cared, you know, you just cared enough to know. And all of these things seem to have been divinely planted in your path, imprinted upon your heart, and become a part of a deep part of your life purpose and mission um, to heal an entire nation starting with healing the ignorance in one cemetery, you know, associated that's locked people out, starting with one cemetery, you know. And and, and it's not like Love Cemetery is the only one um, under these circumstances. You know, there have been bones of slaves buried and found in, in New York City, right in Manhattan, more right there in Connecticut, you know, New Haven, New England, you know. And so Dallas is all over. They're They're all all over. over. These bones and the the voice, the calling of these, the stories, the truth of these bones uh, goes much further than that one community. So you um, make it, somehow you show up to get into this cemetery and end up changing laws in Dallas. Can you talk to us about that? No, in Texas. It was in excuse Texas. me, in Texas. Yeah. Excuse me, in Texas, the entire state of Texas. Talk to us about that so we can have a full understanding of the effectiveness of this work. Well, when, um, after Mrs. Britton and Mrs. Fidito and Ben Galland, my son and I, um, Left Love Center. Well, we were privileged to be there at the moment that we we found this, you know, completely massively grown over cemetery. Mrs. Britton finally found it, pointed it out, figured out where the landmarks were, and Doris saw the found the grave of her great grandfather, Ohio Taylor, which is now on the cover of my book. It had been knocked apart, but he was a man who'd been born enslaved in 1834 and died a prosperous farmer. Um, so Love had been a farming commu- a successful farming community at one time, and this is 
Britain, Mrs. Britain, the last vestige of that community, this little cemetery. So after we left there, I realized and, and tried to get in touch, and I think I did at that time, speak with the sheriff over the telephone because in Texas, as is probably true in many states, there's a law that says you have to give people access to a cemetery, even if they have to cross private land. Of course, one has to be sensible and find out who the owner is and ask permission. So, But there is a mechanism for that. But what I discovered when I talked to the sheriff, who was um, you know, commonly believed as a good man, an honest broker, um, can't say that about everybody, but he, in particular he, he is known that way. And so I trusted that he would help us if he could. And his comment was uh, he could be of no help. We had to get a lawyer because even though the law was um, that the community had a right of access, even and they actually had a permanent access easement on the logging road that we had driven down. Um, they had gotten that from John Hancock, who had originally owned the property that surrounded the cemetery. But long story short, the, sh- the sheriff said, and I know it's true from having worked for the city of Dallas, if he spent all his time chasing down locked gates out in a, in a rural area, he'd never get any law enforcement done. He couldn't begin to deal with that. That was his comment. And that it was a civil matter, and we'd have to get a lawyer. Well, you know, that's usually the end of the story for most people. And you don't have the money. You don't know who would take such a case. Uh, you're going up, in this case, you're going up against timber corporations. So that didn't seem very feasible. And what I found as I did further investigation was that, you know, it was a law that, that was on the books, but there was no enforcement of it. There was no fine. There was no penalty if you, um, you know, if you didn't observe the law. You know, for the landowner, if they if they lost you out, uh, there was no consequence to them. So, you know, what chance would that have for being enforced? It really was completely dependent upon the sheriff, the people, um, their comfort level with each other, and whether or not they would, the community would even call on the sheriff, and you know, and what his sort of sense of common decency and humanity was, and whether or not that was important, and whether or not he had time to enforce that. And and I have talked to the sheriff and marshal since then. In fact, he's in our film. Um, and he has spent a lot of time with this kind of, uh, uh, you know, misunderstanding between people or lack of understanding between people, trying to broker this. So he, he was welcoming the new law that was ultimately passed. What happened was I it never occurred to me to try to change the law or anything like that. I simply, we focused on getting in. And, and what Mrs. Britton had asked me to do was, help her find out who the surrounding landowners were. Because in Texas, again, it may be true other places, but in Texas, no one owns a cemetery. The land belongs to the dead. Cemeteries cannot be sold or transferred. So, um, but we still had to, and they'd be, this particular cemetery, because it was 1.6 acres out in the middle of large parcels of land of 1,500, 1,800 acres at a time, where there's timber grown, uh, there's a private hunting reserve, there's oil and gas drilling going on all the time now. So uh, you have to find out who the surrounding owners are to get access to the gates, to the locks on the gates. So once I was able to track down 
who the owners were, we were immediately able to get access So at that time. Uh, what happened was, so we, we spent four years, and that's really what the book is about, is what we discovered and getting into the cemetery and the kind of new community that began gathering. One of my cousins is the Boy Scout troop master, so he asked his scouts if they would be willing to help. And, you know, it was not, there's no badge for helping people with cemeteries. There's no Boy Scout badge for this. There was no, they got no credit. They were not required. They volunteered. Those who wanted to. And how many how many wonderful. volunteers did you get? Well, initially we had I don't know maybe we'd have a, a dozen Boy Scouts, wow. uh, and sometimes their parents would join. So it would be different every time because we would just clean get back there and clean periodically. But yeah. we did get back in. It, it, w- there was forty years of overgrowth, so it took you know cleaning it three times a year. It took us almost four years to really get it clear. So the, we, got, we got most of it down in about two and a half years. So, China, um, what was the law? Because I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you um, because we're running out of time, but I'm so looking forward to having you come back because we, you know, you're scheduled to come back on live this coming Monday, October 15th, um, at from eight to nine o'clock, a full hour devoted to resurrecting love and wanting the, you know, Sylvia Global's audience to not only support you, but um, tell us very quickly what the law was that ended up being changed and what year that happened. Well, what ha- it happened in, uh, well, the book came out in 2007 and it set off a controversy because, of course, Love Cemetery isn't the only cemetery that people were right. locked out of. Texas. Right. The Attorney General investigated, thanks to uh, an African-American legislator in the district in Houston where the daughter of Mrs. Britton lives and had my book taken to his office. Anyway, he, uh, I'm sure, had heard about other cemeteries where people um, were either kept out of the cemetery or locked out or, as is happening in a beautiful urban black cemetery right in the middle of Houston, the next-door big corporation is quietly just building over the graves and just devouring the cemetery slowly, slowly. And no one's been able to do anything about this. That's all in our film, too. And let me just jump ahead quickly. So so the, the Texas Attorney General's Office investigated the head of the Texas Funeral Commission, in, the man in charge of, and the agency in charge of all burial grounds in Texas, drove to, to uh, Marshall. They had a public hearing. And long story short, there were then public hearings held in Austin. That's when I was called. I didn't know anything about the controversy. Uh, to come to Austin to testify. And so I began working with the state and, and sharing whatever information we had found about Love Cemetery and, and this whole process by which people are locked out. Of, uh, and, and it seemed especially evocative for the African-American community. Where, you what know, year was this? That was in 2008, actually. Well, it began, the book came out in 2007. 2008, I was alerted to what was what was coming up around the book and the fact that there was an investigation and there was public hearings in Austin yes. on what June is, 18th. Oh. And the law was changed June uh, in, in 2009, Rick Perry signed a law that gave enforcement powers to the Funeral Commission 
and created an avenue whereby the Texas Attorney General's Office can ultimately get an injunction against an owner if they are completely uncooperative. And this began with your book titled Love Love Cemetery. Cemetery, Unbearing the Secret History of Slaves. And the evolution from there is Resurrecting Love, the documentary, and the mission is to transform our country, heal our nation by taking this documentary documentary and this powerful story to medias, uh, whether it's, you know, film and television, the Internet, Sylvia Global is here to support you with that, and to the widest audiences possible via, you know, examples are PBS, ITVS, film festivals, again, and educational programs, and to also address having new curriculum development, um, spoken word, debate, and all forms of art associated with resurrecting love. You're in the process of raising 75000 additional dollars to complete the rough cut for submission to multiple venues. Where can our listeners go to make their contribution? Fantastic, Gail. Thank you so much. They can go to our website. We are, we are sponsored by the nonprofit Tax Exempt San Francisco Film Society. You go to our website. It's www. Resurrecting Love Movie, all one word, Resurrecting Love Movie dot org, org. That takes you to our website. On our website, there's a donate button and, that you can be guided to, and then you just click onto that button that takes you into the San Francisco Film Society's page for us and how you donate. You can donate online. You can send the Film Society a check. They're at 39 Mesa in San Francisco. Uh, but the direction, everything is there on the website. And, and they can also... Can also oh, go ahead. Yes, I was going to say people can also email me if needs be, if there's a question or a problem, uh, chinagalland at yahoo.com, chinagalland at yahoo.com. China Gallon, producer and executive producer of Resurrecting Love, also the author of Love Cemetery. And, you know, I think it's it applies. You know, Sue Monk Kidd, um, along with Bill Moyers, had commented on your book, Love Cemetery is a moving work of immense social consciousness and spiritual power written by a very gifted writer. And now, you know, all... Uh, China, I think that we have a chance to take that immense gift and support what you're doing at a much broader level for our entire country and for us individually. I'm going to close out with one of your favorite quotes. You've got to choose love when there's reason to hate. You've got to choose it because hate dries you up and makes your heart bitter and turns it to dust. You've got to choose love, Mabel. That came from Sam Atkins, a man who was enslaved as a child and raised in it, and the friend, your dear friend, um, a friend of yours, Mabel Rivers, was his grand, was his grandson's friend. wife. China Gallon, thank you so much for being here today. We'll look forward to having you back on Monday, October 15th, 8 to 9 o'clock, here on Sylvia Global. I'm your host. Gail Sylvia, and we'll hope you have a wonderful day. And please don't give up, China. We need you to complete this. 
Thank you so much, Gail. I, I, I Finally, a global Bye. program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gail Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with first ladies of nations, households, business, and communities. Trustworthy, live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host, Gail Sylvia.